John 2, verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing twenty or thirty gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out now, and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. You may be seated. Pray with me briefly. Father, I ask that you would give me strength to pray well, that you would cause the truth to be proclaimed, the word to be understood, that you would help those who listen to judge. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, weddings, water, and wine. Um, Any excuse for alliteration is a preacher's delight. And so, uh, this also happens to be exactly what's being talked about. So, let me uh, remind you what we're coming into. We're coming into the section of John chapters 2 and 3, that focuses on the idea of washing and the use of water. We think about the the tabernacle and the temple and how there was a brazen laver of water. So there's this bronze place where water is held for ceremonial washings. Washings point to cleansing, purification, spiritual renewal. And so we are going to deal with that reality here in these two chapters, and as we go further in, what's going to happen immediately following the verses that we just read is Jesus goes into the temple at Passover, and he cleanses the temple. And after that, we see him having a conversation with Nicodemus about regeneration and washing and the new birth. And so we're also going to see a reintroduction of John in this ch- in this chunk of text in these couple of chapters, and his work in terms of continuing to see cleansing occur. So this idea of washing and cleansing continues to be there. We're also going to be introduced to the first sign of Jesus, and it's considered the first in two ways. One, it's the first in chronological order, and secondly, it is considered the first in terms of it is in a place of significance, which it sort of feels like this haphazard event. And what I want to help you to see here is that it is very intentional and uh, furthermore that it is to be viewed as a sign that is more significant than other signs. So we'll, we'll continue through that. 
I have a quick note here, and I hopefully this is the last time I talk about this. John 139, I mentioned it like two weeks ago, it talks about the idea of the 10th hour of the day, and I said it was the Roman time system. Then last time I was like, I think it's the Roman time system, but I wanted to remind you that there's two ways of counting the hours. And having read through every reference to hours in the book of John since then and looked at them, I believe all of the counts are according to the Jewish system, so I'm wrong, I'm sorry, I'll stop bringing this up. But I think this is the Jewish counting system, and so I think it was 4 p.m. Sorry. Okay. So, the text that we're looking at. Um, verse, chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding, and they ran out of wine. The mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. All right, so a few things I want to give to you here uh, that I don't have in my notes. First of all, it's in Cana of Galilee, so it's nearby where Jesus grew up, near Nazareth. And so we have the fact that Jesus is invited, that his mother is invited. Uh, these are all indicators that this is sort of either a relative of Jesus or a family friend. But the fact that Jesus is there and he has his disciples with him indicates that it's probably a close relationship. It's probably relatives because you have this idea that there's an invitation to Jesus and everybody that's sort of in his sphere of responsibility. And Calvin, uh, in his commentary there, uh, delights... Calvin, in his commentary here, talks about how it is the tendency of the poor often (laughs) to be quick to invite... The poverty of this house is on display in the fact that they run out of wine. This is the biggest event that they're going to host. <laughs> this is this is a, a wedding feast. They're out of wine. Sorry. Forgive me, I'm sick and emotional, and I read John Calvin. That induces crying. Anybody? (laughs) All right. Note, if any of you become preachers, don't preach about weddings just before your son gets married. Okay, so they're all invited to the wedding. They run out of wine. So it's a big deal. And this is, um, think about the shame that would come upon a bridegroom in the midst of his own wedding to run out of wine. This is like the principal drink. This is the thing that makes it so that it's a festivity as opposed to just something else, right? So it's a feast without that. So Mary, you know, there are, there are, there are kitchen secrets that only women learn. Right? And these, these are the things where there are, this is the equivalent of the water cooler at the office. This is sort of the, this is the stuff that's going on. 
And so Mary finds this out. This doesn't mean that it's necessarily the case that everybody's aware. This could be, you know, the master of the feast is pouring the last one and going, we're out, what are we going to do? Some people suggest that this is also a, uh, that this is a part of the wedding feast where they're further into it, and it may be the Sabbath, so they can't purchase more wine. Uh, D.A. Carson's commentary, he tries to lay out the count as to why this would be on the Sabbath. I don't see it. Um, and so there's sort of a, but there's that suggestion. So it's either there's a poverty or there's an inability to buy more, but in either case, uh, there's some suggestion of poverty of the family because they don't have enough wine for the celebration, knowing that they're going to have it, and it would be uh, an ongoing thing. I mean, if you have too much, you're going to keep be able to keep using it into the future. So having extra for an event like that. So on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding, and they ran out of wine. When they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to them, they have no wine. So this text um, often gets pointed to by people who encourage you to pray to Mary. Because the idea is that you can talk to Mary, and she has some sort of influence power over Jesus. And I hope to show you that, in fact, this text proves quite the opposite, that Jesus rebuffs Mary for seeking to exercise any sort of authority over his mediatorial and Christological role, and that this would demonstrate the opposite. So, uh, the mother of Jesus, that's a title that is important for us to get right, to understand it properly. Uh, Mary is the mother of Jesus. She, She carried and gave birth to and raised with authority under the law, and Jesus was placed under the law as a man. And so he, she is the mother of Jesus. Um, Jesus is the Christ, so she is the mother of Christ. And Jesus is God, so she is the mother of God. Now, you're holding back a gasp when you hear that. And appropriately so, because that can be taken very badly. The way that can be taken is that Mary is somehow the originator of the divinity of Christ. The way that she is the mother of God is the same way in which the blood of Jesus is the blood of God. And so the same way that those two statements are true is the way in which Mary is the mother of God. And so now I get to introduce you to all sorts of alien-sounding words and names. Prepare to delight. Seek to follow along. Now, in the 4th century and 5th century, this was something that was much debated. They'd already had the Council of Nicaea, which had already captured the language that we talk about the Trinity with. Three persons, one shared essence. Right? We have one shared definition, the attributes of God. So then the question comes down to how do you deal with Christ as the God-man? So, Mary is also somebody where there was a tendency to look at Mary and to want to use her as an object of veneration or worship. And that's because there have always been sort of goddess or female divinity cults. And Ephesus, for example, was dominated by the cult of Diana. And what we see occurred in Ephesus later is that Ephesus became dominated by a sort of Marian cult. Um, And so a lot of guys who decided that it was 
uh, a good trade to make and sell statues of women decided to stop making statues of Diana and start making statues of Mary. And so that being drawn in, there's this temptation, if you have a skill and you have a way of making money, there's a temptation to try to take that skill, to take that trade, and make it into something that you can Christianize. And some things cannot be Christianized. Now, the skill of making statues certainly can be Christianized, but not the skill of making religious statues. So we look at this idea of Mary as the mother of God. There was a guy who was chiefly involved in the opposition to that title. His name was Nestorius. Nestorius was the metropolitan bishop, the patriarch of Constantinople. So he was a very prominent leader of a church. And so there are five cities that kind of became dominant. So just so you have some idea of the history of that, initially you have churches being planted all over. You have them having multiple elders in every city, every church. For the sake of order, you have a moderator that governs the meetings of those elders. And the tendency was, because meetings take a while, and government, when it is meant to preserve liberty and to preserve justice, is inefficient by design, the tendency is to go, how can we make this more efficient? Now, great, make it efficient, but don't make it efficient by erasing the design features. The inefficiency is not a bug, it's a design feature. And so the councils of the church are designed to have public discussion, debate. But when you get frustrated with that, and if you want to have a mega church, so you can rake in mega dollars, then what you have to do is you have to figure out how to have smaller courts, or at least how to consolidate power. So the development of bishops who were distinct from the other elders is a process that occurred in local churches and then in cities, as you had presbyteries having the moderators of those presbyteries becoming metropolitan bishops, so bishops over a city, metroplex, metro area. And then you have some of these cities being viewed as more prominent than others because when you have broader synods or councils to debate things, you go, well, who's going to rule these or whose word's going to be more important? Who will have precedent? And the example of the imperial order is such that there is a guy who's at the top. And so the process of time is such that you end up with the consolidation of power into these patriarchs. And you have five of them that become dominant in particular. Alexandria, Antioch, Jerusalem, Constantinople, and Rome. And so in those places, you have these, these bishops that are viewed as super bishops. It should sound suspiciously similar to super apostles that Paul seemed to talk about and have a negative view of, but this is the way things went. And eventually, Rome, the, the bishop of Rome, claims a supremacy over the others and claims that the only way that any council is valid is if he's present. Which sounds very convenient for him. So this is before you have a total building out of that. The 600s is when Rome really starts to uh, dramatically take to itself centralized dominion. Uh, you have already some recognition, but the 600s is when that becomes really, really dominant. So here we have the 4 and 500s AD, 
you have this debate going on about the nature of Christ, and it gets centered around some of this concern about the veneration of Mary. So Nestorius starts to oppose calling Mary the mother of God, not so much because he thinks it cannot be justified in some way, but because he is concerned that it is being used to intentionally deceive the people. And so he begins to fight it and to say we should really just call him, call her the mother of Christ. So Christotokos versus Theotokos, the Christ-bearer versus the God-bearer is the, the discussion here. So the, 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 the conflict arises out of concern about the improper veneration of Mary. Now, in case you're not aware, Constantinople is right on the northwestern edge of modern Turkey. Okay? And Ephesus is on the coast there too. Okay, so you have this, this kind of Aegean Sea and the um, Bosporus with this small connection of, of water that separates kind of the center of the Greek world, which is western Turkey and Greece. And so you have, in that zone, you have this uh, Artemis or Diana worship. And the transition over to Mariolatry, the worship of Mary. So you could see why Nestorius would be very concerned about this, because where he is is sort of the battleground where that false worship is occurring. It'd sort of be like how we in Arizona, or if you were in Utah, you might be more concerned about the heresies of Mormonism than somebody who's living in Maine. And so that idea that where you're engaging in terms of doctrinal issues, is partly based upon the battlefront that you're on. Right? If enemy tanks are advancing on you, you really would like to have some shoulder-fired rockets, whereas if all you're dealing with is infantry charges, you go, no, we need machine guns. Right? The, the concern is what is the tool that we need to focus on. So which label to focus on for Mary in terms of how to acknowledge her role was sort of the pastoral concern out of which the debate arises. Now, a part of this debate turns into discussing, okay, what was actually in the womb of Mary? Are we talking about a God-man there? Are we talking about just the human part? Are we talking about, how does this all work? And so I presented to you all the kind of the bottom line of what happens. So jump with me to page three, right here to the bottom of it. The way I've written this out is like totally different from the way I just explained it to you. So you get like two versions of the information being presented. I just gave you the story version. The other one has more of the way it's laid out. So I would encourage you to read this after as well. So look at D, Christology. Remember, Chalcedon ends up with four knots, four statements of, of how the union is not set up. Okay, And so these four knots under D1... Christ is God and man in two distinct natures. And he becomes man not by confusion. Right? Remember this? This is not by making some sort of chemical concoction with two bottles being poured in together into a new bottle. That would be sort of like 
a view of Hercules, the Greek idea of a demigod. Okay, so hopefully this is the second or third time you're hearing this, and it's starting to become familiar. Furthermore, it is not by conversion. In other words, Christ does not change from being God to being man. Instead, there's an addition of the humanity. Roman numeral 3. This is not by composition. There's not a dividing up of the parts of each nature. So it's like, here's some humanity and here's some divinity. and We're going to slap them together. It's not that. It's the whole divinity and the whole humanity and they're united. Fourthly, there is no separation after the union. It is not the case that Christ's humanity was made and then at some point He was united. It was from the very moment of conception that there was a union. The error of the idea that he was conceived, born, and then later adopted, is often, it's often asserted that that adoption occurred at his baptism. That is false. And that error is called adoptionism. From the very moment of the conception of the human nature, there is a union within the divine and the human nature. Also, this union doesn't end by his human nature being turned into a divine nature at his ascension or transfiguration or anything else. Both natures are maintained forever. Additionally, any denial of a personal union of the two natures which is what is classically called Nestorianism, is also an error. So if you were to say, here's Christ in his humanity, and here's Christ in his divinity, and there is no way that they are one person, that would be a denial of the inseparability of the two natures. Now, it is often reported of Nestorius that he said that Christ is two persons and not one person. But we have no record of him saying that in front of any court or any of his writings. That was an interpretation of Nestorius. Cyril, if you study the council at Chalcedon, Cyril seemed to misrepresent Nestorius, and there are many historical reports of bribery there. And it seems to have been Cyril ends up writing down a lot of things that sort of suggests that he is one who believes there's sort of a confusion, a mixing of the natures. So there are issues that get dealt with in the future history of the church that would make it more clear that Cyril's writings are um, not as good as one would desire. But Cyril is the principal person pushing for the prosecution of Nestorius Uh, based upon the idea that he is denying the union of the divine and human natures. So, my position on Chalcedon is Chalcedon's doctrine is right, and I do not know if its judgment against Nestorius was just. Because afterward, we do have record of Nestorius saying repeatedly, he agrees with the exact formulation of Chalcedon, and we have him denying that he rejects the personal union of the divine 
and human natures. So, there's a complexity to the history there. A bad judgment uh, by the council in a particular case doesn't necessarily make it invalid. They are operating off of uh, evidence and individual members can be corrupted and the decisions can be corrupted, but at the same time, the pronouncement of the council in terms of its definition of the doctrine of the incarnation is accurate. And so uh, that's the confusion or difficulty of the history there. And um, there's a lot more detail, but I think that's a good place to stop. So I'm going to move off of that. If you have any questions, feel free to ask them at the end, obviously, if you're a voting member, somebody with speaking rights about those doctrines. We can talk about it also uh, more later today. So I'm going to move back now into the narrative here. So we have Christ, and we have his mother, and we talk about Mary. We need to be careful. We can use all those titles. She's the mother of Jesus. She's the mother of Christ. She's the mother of God in the sense that there's a union between the humanity and divinity of Christ. And so by being the mother of his human nature, she is, by that union, the mother of his divinity as a personal union and so that is a case by law and not by origination of his divinity. So now, they're at a wedding, and marriage is a covenantal union that points to the union between God and Israel, between the union between Christ and his church. It points forward to the wedding feast of the Lamb and the consummation of the kingdom of glory. It points to the union of the two natures of Christ by a covenantal or legal union as planned from all eternity and effectuated in time at the conception of the human nature. A wedding is a very fitting place for Christ to exercise a sign miracle that points to his role. Verse 4, page 4. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? And, the Greek actually has with you and me. So, woman, what does your concern have to do with you and me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. So that response, if somebody, if somebody addressed you and said, man or woman, what does this have to do with me? This isn't the time. Would your response be, cool, you guys, get ready to do the thing? Would that be how you would respond? Okay, so there's an action here on Mary's part that is very similar to the, some, the, the woman who comes and is not an Israelite who asks Jesus for a sign. And then he says, you know, I'm supposed to come for the children of Israel. And her response is to say, well, even the dogs eat from the scraps of the table. So Mary's response here and the response of that woman are two responses to rebuffs from Jesus that are responses in faith to rebuffs where Jesus then does something for them, gives a sign, does something to care for them. And so we need to be aware that rebuffs, chastisements, disciplines from God are not things that should make us run away from God. But instead, they should cause us to draw in more. 
So Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me and you? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. So there's a rebuff at the authority and timing. The statement woman does not in the Greek quite come across as negatively as somebody saying woman in English. But it's similar in some ways. Some people try to say dear woman. The word dear is not there. Woman dear, not there. Lady dear, lady. The only people you hear say lady is like the first word and that's it are New York cab drivers. Hey lady. Right? This is not what's happening. It's not a respectful thing, but it's also not a like disrespectful thing. It is a sort of more neutral sounding thing, and it's, but it's distancing. It's very specifically not mother, and it's very specifically not ma'am. Okay, so this is not my lady. This is not mother. This is not a negative thing. It is neutral. And so what it's doing is it's intentionally distancing from Mary and it's asserting that in terms of this discussion, she is not acting as his mother. She is not acting in a place of authority. He is saying this doesn't have anything to do with our relationship as mother and son. You can't, as mother, ask me to do miracles. So do you see how damaging the very rebuff is to the claim that if you pray to Mary, it's going to help you to get to Jesus. It's going to offend Mary when she finds out about it on Judgment Day because she's not listening to you now. And it's going to offend the Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father and the Holy Spirit right now. The way to honor Mary is not to flatter her with lies. It is not to act as though she is God. The way to honor Mary is to honor her as the one who bore the God-man and who was an honorable saint. A woman who is godly. And don't pray to her. Don't pray in her name. Remember the truths about her and use her as an example and someone to speak about. As Protestants, we run away from Mary sometimes. We need to be careful to not do that either. Honoring Mary properly does not look like never talking about Mary. She is a godly example. Talk about her. Her response when she finds out that she is to be the vessel that carries Jesus Christ is amazing, worthy of much study. So there's a rebuff at the authority of Mary and at the timing. Jesus asserts his independence from human authority in his Christological office, his messianic office. He is showing a dependence on divine authority. His time hasn't come yet. Who set the time? The Father set the time for when His first miracle is supposed to be. He refuses to act on the basis of her position, but He does not refuse to act, period. He says, the time is not now, and it's not from you. So it's sort of like, if, for example, you had a married couple And the wife looked at the husband and said, let's do the thing. And he goes, no, we will do it when I want to do it. And he goes, now is the time. Right? That's what happens here. It is that. And we we think about that only in mocking ways, but I'll tell you what. If somebody usurps your authority in a particular thing, it is totally appropriate to say, no. Now, yes. 
There's a totally legitimate way to reassert your authority. Totally legitimate. Jesus did it. Jesus did it. Totally legitimate. Rebuff at the authority and the timing. Okay, so the timing is also about the fact that this is not the time for Jesus to have his own celebratory action for his own wedding feast. They're at a wedding. Jesus is very much concerned about his own wedding feast. At the institution of the Lord's Supper and his coming in glory, we have the inauguration of the new covenant when we have the new feast given. Okay, the giving of the Lord's table, the changing of Passover, brings in the new covenant. And you have Christ then ruling, and we have the whole time from the giving of the Lord's Supper until Christ hands over the kingdom to the Father, we have this ongoing wedding feast. So when we come to the Lord's table, whose wedding feast are we celebrating? Jesus's. Now, we remember the death of Christ, and we also remember the flowing of blessing in the New Covenant era, and we remember that the victory is going to be complete, and we remember that Christ is going to come back in glory. All these things happen as we celebrate the Lord's table. The wedding feast starts at the Lord's Supper. It ends when he hands over the authority back to the Father after the second coming. Okay, go to page five. There's a great quote from Calvin here about the proper honoring of Mary. And here's what he says. I'm going to read some of the underlying parts here. This saying of Christ, when he says, woman, what does this have to do with you and me and the time? Openly warns men not to transfer to Mary what belongs to God by superstitiously exalting the honor of the maternal name in Mary. Christ, therefore, addresses his mother like this so as to transmit a perpetual and general lesson to all ages, lest any excessive honor paid to his mother should obscure his divine glory. For Mary has been made queen of heaven, the hope, the life, and salvation of the world. In fact, some went so far that they just about stripped Christ naked and adorned Mary with his spoils. As if she had not all the honor that belongs to her without being made a goddess. As if it were honoring her to adorn her with sacrilegious titles and put her in Christ's place. The Roman Catholics, therefore, do marry a cruel injury when they snatch from God what belongs to Him, that they may disfigure her with false praises. John Calvin does not mince words. What he says there is exactly right. Now, go to page 6. Look at a quote from D.A. Carson at the very top. In terms of the timing and the idea of turning water into wine, Jesus remembers that the prophets have characterized the Messianic age as a time when wine would flow liberally. If you want to have an interesting experience, go and read those prophecies about the New Covenant and the flowing of wine. 
Elsewhere, he adapts the wedding as a symbol for the consummation of the Messianic Age. The hour of great wine, the hour of his glorification, has not yet come. Okay, so Christ, the timing is partly Christ as the Messianic bridegroom is present, but it's not his wedding. There's an unknown bridegroom, but as we have it preserved here for us, which bridegroom is more remembered at this wedding? The guy who was the host or Jesus? We don't know who he was. So this was designed for the glory of Christ. So this wedding in history was put there to glorify Christ. That should be the goal for all of us with weddings, is to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, verse 6. And there were set there six water water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing twenty or thirty gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out now, and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. And the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom, and he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You've kept the good wine until now. And so this is a little bit of a exasperation, but also, if he's aware that he ran out of wine, much relief. Now, point ten here. We have, this section starts out with the six water pots of stone. The fact that they're stone is significant. Which do you think is harder to make, a stone pot or a clay pot? Well, clay is a lot easier to mold into whatever shape you want. Stone, you have to carve it out. Or you can find it and it happens to be exactly the shape you want. So, which of those ever it is, it's going to be more rare or more difficult. So these water pots of stone are more expensive than clay. And the reason they would be of stone is because they are according to the manner of purification of the Jews. What is that about? Do you think clay pots or stone pots cause there to be more dirt in the water? You put water in, the clay pots are going to have more residue that comes off. They're going to fall apart by degrees, little fragments. There's going to be this falling apart of the pot a little bit into the water. So it's going to gather on the bottom generally. Stone pots are going to have less dirt. So they are allowing the water to be more pure for a cleansing ritual. So these are large, they have 20 or 30 gallons apiece, which suggests this is about having access to water for a long period of time, because the idea of having to go down to a river or something like that to get water is something that would be difficult, and so if you want to have clean water, they're going to get water that is running, or they're going to go through a process of heating it to clean it, and then you're going to store it. So these are large, 20 or 30 gallons a piece. Heavy. Big stone pots that are very heavy when filled with the water. So Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So he has them fill it and they fill them up to the brim. So these things are just any sloshing at all, these things are going to spill out. And he said to them, draw some out now 
and take it to the master of the feast. Now, the way that's normally read in verse 8, draw some out now, sort of like draw some out with like a ladle out of the big pot and take it. The, the point is, draw it out of the well and take it. So, why does that matter? Here's why. The idea of the brim is emphasized with that statement. So there's drawing it out in order to have the water to fill, and then there's this idea of it's filled to the brim. So the point here is that the time of ceremonial purification is filled to the brim. That is the idea. And what's happening is this water for ceremonial purification, a repeated washing over and over and over and over and over throughout your life is being replaced with baptism, one washing. But also it's being replaced with a renewal sign that involves wine. So the ending of these purifications by water, the doctrine of baptisms plural. This is being ended and it is being replaced with the Lord's table. This wine is a symbol for the messianic era coming and this pouring out of wine. And it's also this idea of the wedding feast of the lambs being pointed to, though that has not yet begun. So then it goes on. taking to the master of the feast. The master of the feast is going to be like a chief steward of the house. This is probably the most sober guy at the party. This guy is making sure everything's running. The trains will run on time. And he's going to make sure that everything's happening. And he's the guy who's most fretting, unless the groom knows, about the lack of wine. And so, when this wine comes out, He is going to be tasting it, and he is going to be the guy who is the most likely to understand that this is magnificent wine. His taste buds are the least dulled by other wine. So then, he calls the bridegroom over, and the bridegroom, who has been partying probably the most, this guy tries the wine, and he with his I've been partying for days dulled wine tasting capability is able to instantly tell that this is the best wine. And so he's surprised about the work that the steward has done in terms of the setting of the order, giving the worst wine later because people could have told, they could have enjoyed it more and that would have been the ordinary order of things. Now, as we look at this, this timeline, everything that's happened so far, we're in either the sixth day or the seventh day, depending on your counting, of how things have gone in the book of John so far. And I think it's six. And this is a wedding. Let me ask you, which day of the week did God create marriage? On the sixth day. He made man on the sixth day. He made marriage on the sixth day. And so what we have here is marriage, but we also have this idea that Christ is the creator. That's been the emphasis of the beginning of chapter 1. And then we have the fact that there is the marriage of the Lamb that's going to occur in the future. 
And there's also the recreation work. And this recreation involves a removal of curse. And when he made this wine, the wine that he made is a wine that is without curse. It is a wine that is a part of this new creation. And so the taste of this is the taste of a wine without any curse. So we have marriage and its recreation. We have wine and the removal of curse. We have this idea of the wedding of the lamb. All of that is hidden and buried here. But the central theme of this is the time of ceremonial purification is full to the brim. And it's being replaced with a new order. And that new order involves renewal with wine. Which means it's the time of Messiah. So Christ here, verse 11, this beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested His glory and His disciples believed in Him. So look at what D.A. Carson says. The word for first can also mean primary. It is just possible that John is saying this first sign is also primary because it points to the new dispensation of grace and fulfillment that Jesus is inaugurating. And that's exactly right. This begins his messianic sign ministry. This is the miracle that he initiates his sign ministry with. It is first, but it also has all of this meaning there embedded in it. It is pointing to a lot of things. He's the Christ. He's the bridegroom. There's wine here to replace the purification ceremonies. There's a lot embedded in these signs. So the new creation theme is there. And it's also linked to the purpose of the book, which is that seeing these you might believe. And there's a blessing, a special blessing on those who don't see and yet believe. After this, he went down to Capernaum. He, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. And they did not stay there many days. So it seems that not only is he there, his mother's there, his brothers are there, and his disciples are there. We're told that his disciples believe. We're told elsewhere in a few chapters that his brothers still didn't believe. His brothers were there for this. And they don't believe. His disciples, they believe. And what we're told elsewhere in Matthew, I think it's chapter 5, it says that who is my mother and brother and sisters? Those who believe. And so he is starting to show here the key relational order that we need to care about is of those who uphold the covenant, those who believe, those who are the professors of the true religion. And he's saying his concern more and more, is going to be for that order. And so my hope is that you have seen how to not improperly honor Mary, that you have seen the way in which this miracle is not only the first, but also the first in importance in terms of showing that there's a change that's occurring. And also, my hope is that you understand more fully, more clearly, after repetition, about the nature of Christ as God and his nature as man and the union of them. So, comments, questions, objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights.